That was too enthusiastic. See you next week. <laughs> see, see you next week. Yeah, you don't want to be like desperate. No, like, I mean, I maybe I see you, maybe I don't. You don't know. Maybe I got something right, going know. on. Maybe you care. Maybe yeah. you don't. You think we'll listen next week? I'm you traveling. Don't care. You know. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an associate professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Doing well. I uh, just want to take a sec to thank everybody who's visited our store at cheaptalk.shop. Uh, so thank you to everyone for that. Thank you to everyone who's sending questions. We appreciate it. We'll get to a couple uh, on this podcast, but um, everyone should, should keep sending them at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com. Uh, Marcus, I thought we could start today by talking about Chinese asylum seekers at the southern border. And there was an interesting article in the New York Times about this phenomena that it, it, many migrants coming to the United States through Mexico are actually from China, ultimately from China. And it's kind of a kind of an interesting story. Yeah. And so I actually have to credit uh, my sister-in-law who sent me this uh, article and I hadn't seen it uh, the day of. But when she sent it to me, I read it and I was like, that's... That's actually kind of interesting. We should talk about this and kind of get your your take on this, Jeff. I agree. We don't really associate um, the southern border with with uh, refugees from from China uh, or Chinese nationals trying to get into the to the United States. Typically, I think when you think of you know the southern border, you're thinking about places like Venezuela or or uh, Panama, Colombia, places that where you know the economic uncertainty is really high. There's a lot of uh, sort of political uh, instability. And and basically, people are just looking for a better life, and so they will they will take the high risk of traveling from um, you know say Venezuela all the way up uh, through the Darien Gap and through uh, Mexico to get to the U.S. border, and then you know maybe they can they can get in somehow, maybe they can't. It depends uh, on what their what their fortune is. But you know we've we've kind of think about it in terms of like a, a sort of local kind of South American Latin American problem. So the story that that gets uh, sort of created by the New York Times, pointing out not only are Chinese migrants crossing the southern border, but actually they're doing so at numbers that are really sort of astounding with respect to past precedent. So the headline, you know, kind of numbers on the story is that more than 24,000 Chinese citizens have been apprehended crossing the U.S. For, uh, into the United States from Mexico in the last year. That is more than in the preceding 10 years combined. And of course, these are just the ones that were caught and apprehended. Presumably the numbers uh, are much larger of, of the ones that, that weren't caught. And the story does a nice job, I think, of, of kind of going through some of the, the different reasons. And I interview uh, some of the folks that have been, um, you know, attempting this. And what's, what's striking is a lot of the reasons that they that are given are similar to the reasons why people are, are fleeing from places like Venezuela. So, for for example, one of the, the people that they spoke to was talking about limited kind of personal freedoms in China, where, you know, the economic uh, kind of slowdown combined with the, the strict COVID lockdowns have kind of created an environment where a lot of people, particularly sort of young individuals who might, you know, want to try to create a business or be, you know, have a, they have a small business and they feel like, you know, the government is not really uh, helping them to, to do, you know, what they want to do. They're, they're leaving and they're going for the United States and, and they're not doing it through the sort of normal legal route. They're, they're hopping on a plane and flying to places like Ecuador or Panama uh, and then traveling as, as migrants do up this very dangerous uh, sort of pathway through the Darien Gap, this idea of like a jungle basically between Panama and Colombia. Um, and they're, it's very risky and it's very difficult for them to do it, but they're, they're doing it just like, like everybody else. The other thing that's, that's really interesting uh, to me about the, about the story was that they were discussing the countries uh, 
uh, that don't do anything with respect to returning refugees, right? So uh, if somebody comes into the United States and they get and they get caught and they're here illegally, some countries will will say, okay, we'll take back that uh, refugee because they're our, our national and they're a citizen of of our country and we're you know willing to take that person back. Others don't, and China is one of the ones that that doesn't. So in addition to the sort of refugee kind of crisis uh, situation for these individuals and the feeling of of despair that they have, you know, they have to try this and have to get to the United States. There's also this sort of like diplomatic slash political angle where the United States and China, because they have this sort of, you know, tense relationship, they haven't been able to figure out a way to to sort of deal with these uh, refugees in the sense that China is not saying we're willing to take them back once the United States uh, catches them. So I, I, I found that interesting. And I thought that, you know, it would be, I'm curious if you think that this says anything about, you know, maybe sort of international politics more generally or the U.S.-China relationship in particular. I also thought this was really interesting, and I wasn't aware of this kind of flood of Chinese immigrants coming through the southern border. And what what really struck me was that Chinese applicants for asylum have a much higher success rate than other kinds of applicants for asylum. So the, the number cited in this article, about 67% of applicants from China were granted asylum from 2001 to 2021. And that's, I mean, quite high for asylum applications and and so the kind of that coupled with the fact that they can't be sent back even if they're denied asylum makes this a kind of different calculus for migrants who are looking to come to America that if they can make it here then they're very likely to be able to stay. I'm not sure I would attribute China's refusal to accept them back as something about the US China relationship because I and I don't really know the backstory here but it sounds like from this article this is a China thing. That you know, if they've if they've left, they're not really Chinese, right? And and so you know, we we won't accept them back. Um, and there's some frustration expressed in this article by U.S. officials that China is kind of denying these are even Chinese citizens, um, despite the fact that China operates a surveillance state where they know who everyone is. And so the idea that this person who the U.S. has uh, seeks to deport, um, China saying, well, we don't even know who that is, is is a little bit uh, rich for the for the U.S. side. Um, but I'm not sure that's a U.S.-China thing so much as it is a China thing. Yeah. But yeah, this this idea that they can kind of come and stay if they if they can make it is is an interesting wrinkle that I hadn't really seen. I am skeptical of the story, the the kind of angle in this story that this is about political freedoms in China. I'm sure that's true of maybe the that person that they interviewed in the article, but this uptick in immigration corresponds with a downturn in China's economy. And I think that it is far more likely that it's the economic in incentives that have changed for Chinese immigrants. I can't prove that. But the story from the kind of middle class China person that they talked to about just wanting to be free and not, and not be censored, that, that one strikes me as I'd be surprised if that was the common refrain um, among Chinese immigrants who are traveling to America in this way. It's hard to know, right? From a social science methodology perspective, I mean, I guess we could try to do some type of survey or uh, follow up with these individuals later, but it, it, it's really difficult to get at their true motivations. I think I agree. I mean, I, I would imagine that um, for most of these migrants, the political you know situation in China was not uh, ideal, but I think to, to sort of leave your home and, and take all this risk, that strikes me as being sort of an economic motivation where you get to the point where you're you're sort of desperate, right? Um, and the, the political situation you might not like, and you might find that uh, the, the, the instability is in the lockdowns were terrible. But I think what, what drives people to pursue this type of dangerous jury, journey typically is something like, you know, I need to provide food for my family. I need to, you know, have a, 
a livelihood. And so if I'm not getting that in the country that I'm currently at, I need to find a place where I can I can get that. But also, like when you talk about their their incentives, what has changed in China over this time period? And when you look at it, it's not clear to me that the political environment is that different now than it was five, 10 years ago. But what has changed is the economic environment in China. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, and, and the other thing I wanted to point out about this story, and it, it, they sort of hint at it, they don't really talk about it a lot. I mean, this is sort of an indication that what China's um, sort of public diplomacy, public kind of like facing image, and it's actually a domestic image as well, but, but this sort of idea of like the Chinese dream or the idea that, you know, we're going to have um, a thriving superpower country where everybody that's living in our country is going to be taken care of. Your, our citizens are going to have their, you know, their aspirations met. We're going to have collective prosperity, national rejuvenation, like this whole idea of sort of optimism that you often hear out of out of China from an economic perspective, um, and even a political perspective to a certain extent from from Xi Jinping and other uh, sort of Chinese officials. This really sort of you know puts a takes a takes a blow at that, right? Because it's suggesting that, or at least for some people in China. That this dream of of sort of economic prosperity, this dream of of freedom, this dream of being able to you know be proudful of like the Chinese uh, experience and, and living your life in China is is not there, and so like these people are willing to take you know extreme risk in order to find something uh, that is that that suits their needs or meets their needs. And then you, if you couple that with the idea that China, you know, I guess theoretically has these ambitions of being you know continues to be a rising global power. Um, and they're doing, you know, Belt and Road Initiative, and they have all of these like really strong development projects abroad in Africa and Latin America. And yet, you have this story of of China not being able to really, you know, sort of care enough for its own citizens that they're leaving and taking the risks to go to the United States. I mean, I, I'm not talking about in terms of like China being embarrassed, but I, I think it, it speaks to sort of some of the um, the holes in in what China is trying to do. And I think you're right that the economic downturn has meant that China has not been able to sort of fulfill. A lot of the promises that it's been trying to make to its people and into the international community as being sort of a, a rising star uh, in the international system. And this article also links this flood of immigration to China's issues with population, right? So it mentions that for the first time in 60 years, China's population is, is shrinking with, with fewer births than deaths and points to this as kind of a long-term issue that China's going to have to have to grapple with. And it also raises the point that it doesn't seem like immigration is in any way front and front and center in the US-China relationship the way it is for the places of origin for other immigrant populations that are taking this path into the United States. So when the US talks to talks to Mexico and Colombia and, and Ecuador and uh, other countries that's the number one issue that the U.S. wants to address is the, the security of the border and trying to stem the flow of migrant populations. But for China, doesn't even make the top 10 list of issues that the U.S. has with China. And the article mentions the meeting between Biden and Xi um, recently in San Francisco, where, you know, they talked about fentanyl. They talked about foreign direct investment and business and export controls and pandas, of course, mm -hmm. but, but not migrants. And I mean, I, the implication is that this somehow should be. Uh, an issue of some importance between the U.S. and China, but I'm not not convinced of that at all. But I mean, it certainly is with other countries that have similar size populations coming into America. Yeah, I mean, at, at the end of the day, I mean, Biden, you know, has a, a big problem on the southern border. This is one of the, you know, politically one of the points that Republicans, uh, whenever there's a Democratic president, you know, sort of point out that 
you know, the, the southern border is, is porous. And of course, that's why Trump wanted to build the wall and so on and so forth. So it's always for Democratic presidents in particular, it's always, you know, an issue. Uh, the, the refugees and the asylum seekers. I think that, you know, the, the fact that they're, they're more Chinese nationals, like joining that group, I think is, is interesting. And I think it's, you know, it's worth discussing why that is. But I agree with you. I don't think that from a U.S.-China perspective, uh, this is one of the things that's going to kind of float to the, the top of the list of concerns when you have other things like AI, climate change, uh, you know, all, terrorism, like all, all kinds of other things that I think are what both countries likely see as high, higher priority items, um, which is not to diminish, you know, any of the, the tragic, um, you know, sort of toll that, that this trip takes. And just on that note, I, I will say um, I, I did a deep dive the other day on uh, La Bestia. Do you know about this? This is the train in Mexico. This train. Yeah, um, I do know. Yeah, about yeah. It. It's like the train of death, right? It's like yeah. they, that's what they refer to it as. Um, and it's it's really a horrendous story. But now, yeah. you know, with with YouTubers and things, there's people that actually go and like take the train and film it and talk to some of the people that are on the train. And it's this train that basically travels uh, through Mexico and people will wait for sometimes weeks, like alongside the, the tracks to get to not just when the train passes, but for the train to pass by slowly enough so that you can get on like with your family members and with your children and, and things like that. So like it, it'll come by like maybe a couple times a, a week. And if it's not slow enough to, for you to get on with your, your kid or whatever, you're not able to get on. You have to wait for the, for the next one. It's really, really horrible stuff. And, and so I did a sort of like historical kind of deep dive of the existence of that train. And for a while they were, they were actually not running it because so many people were, were, were getting killed on it. But it's just, it just kind of reinforces again that, you know, to take the, to go to that length to, um, you know, try to get out of the, the situation that you're in, whether it's a country or whatever type of situation you're trying to, to flee and get to the United States, your, your situation has to be pretty desperate. And I, and I think for the Chinese nationals that are doing this, that is also true. Like, it's, it's true for people that are born and raised in Venezuela that want yeah. to get out for economic reasons. And I think it's probably true for the, the Chinese nationals as well. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, Marcus, but this is not like my image of people riding the train in the 20s uh, or, during, or the 30s during the Great Depression where they, like, get on the in, in the boxcar, you know, and, like, curl up and relax for a while. The people are riding on the top of this train. And oh, yeah. It's yeah. like it's and it, you no, fall they're, asleep they're on the top of this train. You fall off the train and right. it's terrifying. The The images that don't Google this. The images are pretty horrible. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a, it's a terrible story. But it, you're right. I mean, I, I I think the article does a good job back to the kind of Chinese migrants discussing the ways in which the migrants are different. Um, in some ways from the other populations that are taking this route into the United States, including that they are richer. So the the Chinese migrants are generally middle class. When they make it through the asylum, you know, system where they file for asylum and either are accepted or rejected, but, you know, either way they stay, they go to New York, you know, they, they have a community, they are not staying in shelters for the most part. The, this is not a community that is a kind of economic um it has a different economic effect on the United States than some of the other uh, migrant populations. And I think maybe for that reason, it's kind of less politically salient uh, as a domestic policy issue, because it's not the case that Chinese migrants are taking up uh, shelter space, for example, right. in New York City. Right. So, uh, you know, that, that may be one factor that kind of moves it off the, the list of top 10 issues that the United States has to deal with, with China. I, I agree completely. And, and then just getting back to the last, last point about the train. Um, it is a tremendously dangerous uh, train ride. One of the sort of heartwarming aspects, though, if you if you look at some of the YouTube videos, what you'll see is that along the route, people will like local communities will get out, go to the to the, where the train tracks are, and throw food, 
throw blankets because it gets actually like in the middle of the night it's like really cold and, and these parts of mexico are like, kind of like desert like and so not only can you not sleep on the, the roof of a train but if if you're freezing to death like that's going to be even 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 harder so people will will as communities like throw uh food water clothing blankets whatever as the train passes by and so like you know, these, these videos are, like, horrendous, but there are these moments where you see, like, humanity's kind of, like, positivity and optimism, yeah. uh, and that, that makes it, you know, you feel a little bit better for, like, half a second, and then you go back to realizing just how terrible uh, all of this is. But, you know, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right that the Chinese uh, migrants are, are, are a little bit different from a, from a number of different perspectives, including the sort of the networks that they have built up, and they go to New York, and they can, I think, a little bit more easily get jobs and, and things like that as well, so... It is it is slightly different, but an interesting story from the New York Times. Right. And I mean, and also the fact that they're pursuing the asylum route to uh, to entry means that the ability to be employed is uh, make, it makes being employed easier because when you're right. granted asylum um, or even if you're not there are and you're and you're stuck in the country, and you can't be deported. There are mechanisms for you to be employed. Um, and if you uh, are not going through the asylum process, then it's a different different story. Do you want to talk about. The news coming out of the diplomacy world today that a retired U.S. diplomat, a pretty senior level diplomat, diplomat, former ambassador to Bolivia, apparently was apparently a spy for Cuba. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I find this interesting. And, you know, there's there are many cases of this, obviously, uh, of, you know, Americans becoming spies for other countries. This this one struck me. Uh, as a little bit unique in the in the sense that it seems to have been going on for a long time. So we don't have all the details yet. We know what the complaint is. That was you know, some of the charges that were filed. Actually, we're recording this on Tuesday, uh, and then tomorrow on Wednesday, evidently, there's going to be more charges filed. So we'll have a bit, sort of a better picture of what was what was going on. Um, but it seems like this was a person who, uh, right, was a long time American diplomat that at least for a couple decades maybe was serving as a secret agent for Cuba. So a lot of this comes from meetings that, that this guy had with the undercover FBI agent who was pretending to be from Cuba. And he said that he had spent 40 years spying on behalf of uh, the Cuban government in Havana and strengthened the revolution, he said. Okay, so this is actually the part that I want to talk about. So okay. the strength of the revolution, right? So, you know, one of the, the questions that comes up in these cases is like, why, why do this, right? Like if you're an American, you're a diplomat. You enter the foreign service. You take the foreign service exam. Uh, you you know you have your training. You have your language training. You go off. You do rank and file uh, diplomacy for a while. You get you get to the point where you're ambassador. Like that's you know we've talked about ambassadors before in the pod. And so not, they're not always uh, civil servants. They're not always because uh, they're they're you know sort of appointed and things like that. But for somebody like this who's been in, in public service and uh, foreign service for a very long time, the question is always sort of like why. Why make this switch? Why make this, uh, you know, sort of, of um, you know, move to work for the for the enemy? Now, to be clear, Cuba today uh, is not quite the same sort of enemy that they have been historically. But if he's been doing it for the last four decades, that harkens back to a, a period where we were, were in the Cold War and they were, you know, more of a of an enemy. Um, or if he's maybe at, was working with other actors, other nations, we don't know. This is why one of the reasons why I want to see the the complaint that gets uh, filed tomorrow. But we don't really know many of the details at this point. But it's interesting that he would say, uh, help the revolution or, or you know, propel the revolution or whatever the, the words were, because this suggests something like an ideological motivation. And this is one of the kind of groups of, of reasons why people kind of turn and turn to be spies. Um, and it was, it was very common, not very common, but it was common during the Cold War where people, Americans and sometimes Soviets, um, became disillusioned with their side 
And they decided that actually the other side, the sort of communist ideology, if you're an American, let's say, uh, was actually correct. And they, they had a better sort of vision for humanity and a better path forward. And you actually started to sympathize with the Soviet side. And so that would be the reason why you might uh, you know, transfer allegiances and become a spy. And because you're an American, you have access to all these offices and, and files and stuff like that. It's, it's very, very easy for you to become a spy, which is a very different motivation than for other spies are just like financial. You know, it's like you run into a financial hardship and you're like, geez, you know, I can't pay the mortgage. I got, I got all this credit card debt, whatever. And somebody comes along and says, I see you're in a, in a desperate place. I have a way out for you. Uh, would you be willing to give us some information, give us these files, whatever? That's a very different type of motivation, it seems to me, than somebody who's sort of like ideologically kind of motivated. And so it'll be, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if this person did make that ideological switch. I mean, maybe it is as simple as he has some personal gain that he could, you know, envision or he has some type of financial situation that was going to benefit him. I have no idea. But if he did sort of make an ideological switch at some point, what catalyzed that? Uh, and why his sympathies turned, you know, towards revolution and towards Cuba, I, I would be uh, fascinated to to kind of learn about, like, why he ended up uh, doing this. I would imagine most spies historically, I'm just going to make this up because I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's books and dissertations that have been written on this. I would imagine most spies uh, historically do so for economic reasons um, and that the ideological kind of shift would be the minority of cases. But but I don't know. And, and I'm I'm curious to follow this and see what what it, what plays out. Yeah, I mean, so the motivation for spy, you're right. There's a big body of psychology and, and other kinds of literatures that talk about this. So this line about helping the revolution, he said to someone he thought was representing Cuba, Cuba's intelligence service. Uh, so I just wanted to clarify that, right? So this isn't like an admission by this person of their their true motivation for doing this and i think although it could be it could it certainly could be right and i think it probably is but but i uh, i don't know that we can go by that particular quote right apparently the complaint says that he started doing this in 19 at least as early as 1981 so it's a long it's a, a long period of, of spying from the perspective of the intelligence agency that is running the spy it is much better to have someone who is ideologically inclined to support your cause than it is to have someone who is motivated by financial gain. And there are a number of reasons for this, one of which is like there are other opportunities for financial gain. And so uh, you don't want anyone like going to the highest bidder. And so from the perspective of, you know, you're an intelligence service and you want to keep this information flowing, what you want is someone who believes in your cause, but then you want to give them enough money, attention, other things they need, a nice car, whatever, that they are comfortable and happy in their situation. And also that it would be painful to break off that relationship, right? So the money is the, I don't know, the disincentive from ending the relationship, but it's not the driver of why they're doing it in the first place. And that's the goal. People who are solely motivated by money are much less reliable than people who are motivated by ideology. Uh, now, I, I actually would disagree with your speculation about why most spies do it. I think probably the majority of them believe in the cause, right? Believe they're doing the right thing. And some of that may be like post hoc uh, justifications to themselves. They can go to sleep at night or whatever. But but I think that's true. I think people really do think that they're helping, you know, the cause of freedom in the case of U.S. spies abroad, right? We're, we're the good guys and uh, they want to help. Um, and that's, I think, a driving motivation for, for many people who, who take, that, take that route. Now, Cuba is 
kind of widely recognized as one of the most aggressive intelligence services when it comes to recruiting spies in the United States and in tamping down on intelligence operations within Cuba. And there have been a number of uh, situations over the years where Cuba like rolled up U.S. spies and in a very embarrassing manner arresting people. Um, so U.S. operations in Cuba have been kind of plagued by counterintelligence problems. That is, the Cubans knew that the U.S. spies were there. And part of that is that Cuba has been very successful over the years in recruiting relatively high-level U.S. officials to spy for them. And so there's the, the case of Ana Mont Montes, who uh, was a DIA intelligence analyst who I think just got out of jail like this year, but served like a 20-year 20, 20 20 of her 25-year sentence for spying um, for, for Cuba, but was like a high-level uh, DIA intelligence analyst in charge of the Defense Intelligence Agency in charge of, um, of Cuba. Um, and so had access to all of the information about Cuba, inclu including sometimes operational information about U.S. intelligence operations there that she was able to provide to, Q to her Cuban handlers. And that, too, was motivated by ideology, that she really believed that the U.S. policy toward Cuba was wrong. And sanctioning um, all these innocent people in Cuba who uh, were just trying to live um, their their communist lifestyle, you know, was, was the incorrect policy and that she could do something to to help. And that's kind of how this got started. So I think that the motivation here is may well have something to do with uh, with ideology, particularly because these people were recruited before they became these high level officials. Right. So like they, they caught them while they were. Uh, in the case of Anna Montes, uh, she was kind of like a clerk at the Justice Department. But it, it sounds like uh, in the case of this diplomat, he was just starting his career. Um, and so people like that, you know, it, it may well be they they believe in the cause and they're, they're taking the job even because Cuba wants them to take the job. And that was the case for Anna Montes, who uh, like accepted a position at DIA, at Defense Intelligence Agency, even though she was strongly opposed to the U.S. Defense Department, right, on, on ideological grounds. And all her friends and family thought it was really bizarre that she was taking this job at the Defense Intelligence Agency after spending years railing against U.S. imperialism. But yet she yeah. did it. And it turns out the reason she did it, Cuba told her to do it. So that's uh, maybe one, one thing to, to look for here, how much of a role Cuba played in kind of pushing this person toward um, their career, which ended up being quite successful, holding very high-level positions. One of the things I thought was really interesting here was a story about something this diplomat did. The diplomat's name, by the way, this is uh, Manuel Roca. Mm -hmm. And he was the, the ambassador to Bolivia when Evo Morales was running for president. And he made a statement during the, the election Something like, I want to tell Bolivian voters that if you elect this guy, the U.S. is going to cut off support for, for Bolivia or like, uh, you know, be very angry that this guy will be elected because the U.S. policy was against Morales, who was kind of anti-American um, in his rhetoric. And this statement like really helped Morales in the in the election. Right. And Morales was associated with Cuba. Cuba supported him. And he even joked that uh, Morales did during the during the campaign that his warning had helped his campaign. He jokingly referred to him as his, quote, chief of campaign. 
And uh, there's some quotes in, this art, in an article I'll link to in the, in the show notes from the New York Times talking about how the people who at, at Maine State who were kind of in charge of Bolivia policy saw this statement. They were like, what has gotten into this guy? This is a ridiculous statement for a U.S. ambassador to make. He's got to know this is going to help Morales in the election. And, they, you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, ambassadors, right? Uh, but he, <laughs> he just, you know, he got away with this, right? Like like trying to sabotage uh the the candidate that was uh, preferable for the United States. So it's kind of an interesting story about how you can do these little things that that may make a difference. It's not just necessarily providing uh, information to Cuba. There may have been concrete actions that this person took to aid Cuba while he was in power. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I mean, the other thing to remember too about spying, and I was I was thinking about this while you were talking about you know sort of disagreeing with me about the financial motivations. It, it maybe you're right. Maybe it is is ideological. But when I think of spies, I think probably what, what kind of you do as well, which is like this sort of Cold War sort of ideological, you know, U.S. versus Soviet Union Warsaw Pact kind of stuff. Like the Americans, the TV show on FX, you know, it's a great show. Great show. Like I think of that kind of stuff. But but in reality, like espionage and spies just more generally, like the universe of cases uh, is incredibly large. I mean, there, there are cases of European countries spying on one another, the United States spying on Europe. I mean, and we've talked about this on the pod before. Like everybody's spying on everybody, right? And so, like, I, I would agree. Like, sometimes it's got to be sort of you know ideologically motivated. But I think in a lot of these cases, we're talking about like you know situations of like economic espionage. We're trying to get like an industrial kind of secret or an advantage, and so that would that would I would think would be more sort of aligned with financial gain or whatever. But I, I just want to point out that like not all of these spy cases have to do with like the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, although a lot of them did. But like there are just there's spies everywhere and there's spying just constantly going on, whether they're in balloons or or on the ground. Spying is ubiquitous. Yeah, I don't think they put the people in the balloons. Not the people. That's true. Yeah. Although so that's, that's kind of a I wouldn't call that. I mean, it's spying. Right. But that that's not what we kind of talk about. Is, we mean we mean human spies. Yeah. I mean, human, human spies. spies. Right. So like, right. People yeah, have turned. There, there's a lot of, you know, intercepted communications among all countries maybe even right. some cyber access among all countries. I think it's tricky to get like a person to spy on the French government for America, right? I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying that's a tricky one, right? Because there isn't a good ideological angle to right. take advantage of there. It would have to be purely financial, you would think. Uh, yeah, but or I think it's the, it's the job of the organization that is handling that spy to make them feel like they're doing the right thing. So they're, 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 they may be in financial distress. They may have some situation that gives the intelligence organization leverage over them. Right? They may be in debt. They may owe money. They may have done something that's embarrassing in, to them. In debt right? and owe money are the same thing. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Right. But what I'm saying is like that may be what drove them to think about these issues but what the task of the organization that's running the spy is to shift that into you're doing the right thing. You're you're a patriot for America. Right. And, and kind of turn it away, even though, yeah, they're using that as leverage. They're helping with the debt problem. They're paying them. They're providing a car. Um, all of that is true. And that's part of kind of locking the person into that relationship. But it's very important to move that relationship from financial need into some kind of ideological motivation to make the person feel like they're doing the right thing, because that's a much more sustainable relationship. And so I think, you know, just whatever the kind of initial impetus was, that's not always what it ultimately turns into for for the spy. 
All right. So the, the lesson here for the listeners, if you're going to if you're going to recruit a spy, you want to do so in such a way that you can sort of gain their sympathies for the cause. And that will ensure long term stability in their their espionage capabilities. Yes, that's right. Okay. Very good. I'm, I'm, glad we, I'm glad we were able to <laughs> provide that insight. I, mean, to, I feel to our like listeners. in every pod episode, there should be a lesson to be learned. And that that seems to be this this week's lesson. I think there's a lot more that's going to come out about this case. Um, but, it, you know, what would the thing to look for, at, you know, and maybe all of this will be out by the time this podcast is out. So I don't know. Maybe we'll already know. But the, the thing to look for here is what information this guy had access to that was potentially provided to Cuba. So these cases are really difficult to unwind without the co- cooperation of the of the offender. Right. So um, if Roja doesn't cooperate with the FBI then it's going to be really difficult to figure out what potentially was given to Cuba over the course of 40 years. That's a huge amount of time to figure out what files were read, what what names of, of U.S. intelligence assets would have been in this guy's hands, what other communications might he have had, what information did he have that Cuba could have given to China or Russia, with whom Cuba has had good relations off and on over the years. So the figuring out the damage caused by this person is going to be a huge task for the investigators and really, really, really rough unless he cooperates. And that's why you may see additional charges laid out that the government hopes to plea so that they can gain the cooperation of of the um, offender, because otherwise it's really difficult to figure out what damage has been done. And that is really important because the U.S. has ongoing intelligence operations in Cuba, China, Russia, a lot of places. And knowing what could potentially be compromised is, is the kind of number one priority here to make sure that U.S. intelligence assets are not put in harm's way. Okay. So we had a question. This is from Kathy in Roanoke, Virginia. Kathy asks, what does each side gain from a ceasefire in the Gaza conflict? Kathy has more to say about this, but I'm going to kind of boil it down to the essentials here. You know, there's been a recent, uh, recent ceasefire that, as we're recording, is well in the, in the rearview mirror, right, has, has ended. There's continuing hostilities that are, that are pretty horrible uh, between Israel and uh, Hamas in Gaza. But last week, uh, in happier times, there was an extended ceasefire where hostages were returned to Israel from Hamas's original October operation and prisoners from Israel were given to, uh, given to Hamas. And, you know, I think it raises this question, like, why do we see the ceasefire? What are the benefits to each side from the ceasefire? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, if you, if, it's a very odd thing, actually. If you think about ceasefires and what they, what they are, it's kind of like this idea that we're going to have a truce for a limited amount of time. Uh, and then we're going to go back to fighting. And, and, you know, Israel was very clear on this, that if they're going to do a ceasefire, that once the ceasefire is over, we're going to go back to what our mission was, which was to, you know, go into Gaza and take out Hamas uh, leadership. Now, I think there's a couple different ways to kind of think about, like, why both sides would want this. So from, from the Hamas perspective, um, a ceasefire, uh, by definition, is a sort of pause in the fighting and is a pause in the, in the military action. That provides them with more time. Um, most of the, the sort of incursion has been in the north of Gaza. I think everybody, not everybody, but a lot of analysts have said, uh, particularly now that we're, we're starting to see it as, as when we're recording, sort of an incursion into the south of Gaza is, is kind of a foregone conclusion, and that will happen at some point. So if you're Hamas and you're looking for ways to try to uh, prepare to position your you know, artillery in, in where you think it needs to be, 
uh, if you want to put particular personnel in, in places that they need to be and you're getting ready for this incursion in the South Gaza, then a, a truce gives you some time. So, so the truce, so the ceasefire from the Hamas perspective is about uh, gaining time to prepare against the incursion that's coming um, from Israel. I think the other thing that's happened uh, with, with Hamas, too, is that with a ceasefire and a truce, in this particular instance, it, it was tied to humanitarian aid. And so one of the things that's been, been able to happen, and this is good for civilians, is the um, increased humanitarian uh, aid. We're talking food. We're talking fuel. We're talking you know, various things that civilians need to, to you know, withstand this crisis. They can also use those items, like particularly fuel, for their own military purposes. And so if you have rockets, you need electricity, and, and we know there's a blackout in Gaza, there's no electricity. If you, if you need fuel, then a, then a ceasefire with humanitarian uh, aid is uh, attached to it is actually a very good thing for you because you can use that, uh, or at least some of those items, both for civilian purposes to, to help the people of Gaza, but also to prepare militarily. And then also, you know, from from the Hamas perspective, they're they're getting something out of the ceasefire in re with respect to releasing hostages, and they're getting prisoners returned. So prisoners that were in Israel uh, that they believe, you know, are there uh, illegitimately are being released, and so there's a sort of like swap of hostages for these these prisoners. I think the more kind of interesting part of this is from Israel's perspective, like what what it is uh, that they are able to get from from the ceasefire. And one of the, the perspectives here might be from like a bargaining, and I know you're, you're likely to talk about this, so I'll, I will leave this for you to kind of like jump on. But from a bargaining or sort of, of you know, rationalist modeling uh, perspective, for every hostage that Hamas releases, they are essentially losing some leverage, right? So one of the, the things that happens during the ceasefire is Hamas was giving hostages back to Israel, which is fantastic, and they're, they're back home and, and, and hopefully safe. But what that means is that they for every one of those hostages to get released, they don't have, you know, sort of an unlimited supply of hostages. And so their leverage is kind of shrinking uh, hostage by hostage. Israel knows this. And so by offering the ceasefire, they're able to, in a, in a way, kind of reduce Hamas's uh, negotiating leverage, if you will. And that will then allow them to, after the ceasefire is over, to continue to do what they were, were going to do just with Hamas negotiation uh, sort of power being reduced. And so I think the Israelis and Netanyahu are looking at this as saying, we're going to gain uh, hostages. It's true that Hamas uh, will have time to prepare for the incursion that's going to happen in the south, but we're also reducing the leverage that Hamas has because they are uh, reducing hostages as, as part of this. The one tricky part, it seems to me, is if I'm, if I'm Netanyahu or if I'm Israel, uh, Israel policymaker or, or Israel in general, there are multiple audiences for all of this, for everything, every single thing that happens in this war. And so the, the Israeli population, some of them might you know, very much like uh, to see, you know, Israel continue with the incursion into the south of Gaza after the, the ceasefire. I think for a lot of sort of people watching from the, the outside, whether in the United States or Western Europe or whatever, they're looking at it and they're saying, we just had this, this peace deal. We just had this truce for a, a moment in time. Why can't we continue that? Like, why, why can't we just, you know, stop the fighting and say, let's talk, let's negotiate, let's do whatever we have to do to prevent the, the fighting from occurring. So the danger, it seems to me, for, for both sides, really, is that, and, but more for, for Israel, is that if you are going to have the ceasefire and the ceasefire is going to end, what comes next becomes incredibly important because you just showed the people of the world what it looks like to not be fighting. And so that's, if you're, if you're trying to sell this to, to the world as being a necessary thing that you need to do, that's fine, but you also just showed them that you can get along, you know, at least for temporarily without without fighting. 
So I'd be curious, Jeff, what, what do you have to say from a, from a bargaining kind of theory perspective? Yeah, no, I think you did a good job kind of lining up the, the incentives on each side. I mean, from the Hamas side, I just, you know, I think the overriding rationale for a ceasefire is kind of retrenching and, and helping to kind of solidify their military situation. One, one kind of thread that I've seen out there on the interwebs um, that has been part of the political debate in Israel is the extent to which released prisoners from Israel that return to Gaza to help Hamas, the extent to which those fighters are valuable to Hamas. And I, I, I don't think they are. I, I just want to say that. I mean, so there's been a debate like, is Israel harming its military effectiveness by having this exchange of prisoners? And, and the answer, I think, is unequivocally no, um, that the benefit Israel gets from getting hostages back is more than outweighs the very small um, addition of, of fighters to the Hamas, Hamas ranks, which is already, you know, Hamas, Hamas has pl plenty of fighters. So um, I, I don't think that this is a, a real factor. On the Israeli side, I agree it's a little more interesting. I think hostages are the number one thing, and it's very important politically for the Israeli government to do what it can to return hostages. It's important internationally. You know, there are many hostages who have international citizenship. I think Israel, Israeli leaders want, you know, I'm not trying to make this into a political calculation. I think Israeli leaders really want hostages returned um, and are doing their best to get them returned. And this is not like a, I, I don't mind to make this seem like a, it's just a political calculus. It's not. I think the, the leaders really do, really do want to see hostages back, back home. Um, so that I think is the overriding thing for Israel and to the extent of which like trading a day of Hamas's military retrenchment for some number of hostages is a, is a good deal, I think, from, from Israel's perspective. There's also the pressure from external actors situation here. So Israel is functioning on an environment where it is facing quite a lot of international pressure to stop doing what it's doing and to kind of stop the military advance in Gaza and find a situation where they, the hostilities can end. And it knows this. It has military goals that it's trying to achieve before that pressure becomes unbearable and it has to cave. And so one thing Israel thinks it might be able to do to relieve that pressure momentarily is have a pause in the hostilities. And so there is some aspect to which stopping the fighting for a little while, while it may help Hamas a little bit militarily, also helps relieve the pressure slightly for Israel. I'm not sure how strong a factor that is, but I think it does, you know, you can see it in the press coverage of what's going on, that there's, Israel can take a breath, right? Um, it's, it's moving toward a potential peace. It's demonstrating that there is a potential peace that's out there. So it's a, a form of signaling. We can talk about whether it's a particularly effective form of signaling, but there's a form of signaling there when you're willing to sign a, uh, when willing to agree to a ceasefire. There are, are also kind of military things to talk about on, on Israel's side. So Israel is engaging in, in a, kind of a difficult pace of operations here in, in moving quickly through Gaza. We don't talk about this a lot. This is, this is a story that was like front and center in the Ukraine-Russia conflict where everyone's worried about troop readiness and how are the troops managing. And we're not talking about that at all with regard to Israeli troops. But Israeli troops have the same kinds of issues with exhaustion and dealing with a very difficult situation as everybody else's troops, and maybe even compounded by the fact that many Israeli troops are reserves. It's a, a citizen army. And so for that reason, I think there are military benefits to uh, taking a pause on occasion. And so Israel wants that too, not just Hamas. And then there is an intelligence story 
So this is a effectively a very large-scale counterinsurgency operation. And as we've talked about in the past on this podcast, the key factor in counterinsurgency is knowledge of what's going on on the ground. Israel needs to develop a very accurate understanding of where Hamas leaders are, where Hamas fighters are. And it's difficult to do that while bombing is on, underway, while they're going door to door in military operations. They need time sometimes to talk to people who've been apprehended, to look at the lay of the land and see where leaders might be, see where fighters might be, and adjust their strategy. And so I think that the ceasefire also helps Israel in that way, because it allows a little bit of time for the intelligence to catch up to the military operation. Now, there's a big literature on ceasefires. There's a big literature on ceasefires um, that talks about the various ways that ceasefires can lead to a permanent settlement. Um, there's a bargaining literature here that talks about how ceasefires can reduce uncertainty about about the intentions and resolve of the other side. Um, the kind of key, one of the key players here is a, a fantastic scholar by the name of Paige Fortna, who wrote a book called Peacetime, Ceasefire Agreements and the Durability of Peace that I can recommend. It's a good book. And so there's a lot of literature on this, but I, I, I'm going to say, I think most of the literature doesn't apply to this case because it is talking about written ceasefires that have been signed, that have uh, zones of demilitarized zones, that have third-party monitors, that have um, you know steps that both parties have to take to maintain the ceasefire, none of which exists in the Israel-Hamas case, which is all kind of brokered by the United States in Qatar and is a little bit they're doing the best they can with what they got, but there's not there's not like a piece of paper with all the provisions that everyone's trying to abide by, and there's some third party team that's verifying. And so I think the the kinds of ceasefires that we're examining in that literature are much more robust and therefore much more likely to lead to a permanent settlement than the kind of ceasefire we're seeing in the Israeli Hamas conflict, which doesn't seem likely at all to lead to a permanent settlement. Although it does send kind of a weak signal that that at least an extended pause is a possibility, and that's something that we can continue to work toward. Yeah, I agree. I, I was looking at some of the literature on ceasefires today uh, in, in anticipation of talking about this, and I was struck by the same as I think that you were, which is that these are much – in political science, we tend to think about ceasefires from a sort of formal, almost like a treaty kind of perspective where like both sides have sat down. Like It's usually like something written, um, and this seems much more sort of an informal kind of momentary truce that was part of a larger kind of broker deal. Uh, with the United States, and, and we got to give credit, by the way, the United States and Qatar for for doing this. Oh, like, this absolutely, is not, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we, we we talked a couple weeks ago. Like, it didn't seem like a ceasefire, or the prospect of a ceasefire, uh, just as you know, as early as a couple weeks ago, was not uh, in the cards. And so they were they whatever it, it took place, and we will eventually learn sort of the diplomacy and the back channel kind of you know efforts that were made. But this was clearly a win for um, you know anybody that wants to see a a, a, a breakdown in the fighting and a pause in the fighting. But it's not a ceasefire in the sort of traditional political science sense where it's much more of a formalized kind of agreement. All right, Marcus, let's close with the last question. This is from Brady from Medford, Massachusetts. Brady asks, what's your take on the whole Elgin Marbles situation? And I got to say, <laughs> I was not up on this. Um, but at Brady's urging, uh, there, there's apparently some <laughs> scandal involving King Charles wearing a particular tie to the climate summit. Do you know what's going on here? 
No, I don't. I don't exactly know what's going on here, but I, I, I am. I sort of saw some news uh, reports about this, and I know that there was a meeting that was canceled between Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, and the Greek uh, Prime Minister, whose name I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. I'm sure they will mess it up. But I think it's Mitso, Mitsotakis. But anyway, so so something happened where there were comments made by the Greek uh, Prime Minister comparing, um, like the the separation of the Elgin marble, marbles from Greece is like cutting the the Mona Lisa in half or something along those lines. And after that, Rishi Sunak canceled the meeting that they were going to have because he didn't think that uh, this was supposed to be a, a moment to relitigate kind of matters that had been, you know, sort of decided long ago. So so let me just give a backdrop as to what we're talking about here. Yeah, give them the backstory. The, the, our, many of our listeners are going to have no idea what you're talking about here. Right, including myself until very recently. So so these sort of marbles, and I think marbles are, are sort of like a word that's used to describe like sort of like uh, engravings and uh you know sort of they're not marbles in the sense of like you play marbles like on the on the on the ground or like at the play yard or whatever they're like they're sculptures these are sculptures they're, they're sculptures, sculptures right and they're really old so like they're 2500 years old uh and they come from greece and they're sort of symbols of freedom and historically have been sort of a proud sort of nationalistic uh part of of greek culture during colonization lord elgin uh back in the 1800s who was a diplomat evidently uh took them or I guess his story was that he received permission from the Ottoman Empire uh, to take them. And he basically took these marbles back to the UK uh, and put them in, in London. And, and so the, the sort of British people, the UK, have held on to them since since then. So like going back to the 1800s. Yeah, they're at the British Museum. You can, you can go see them. Yeah. They're at the British Museum. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And Greece has for a long time, after independence from the Ottoman Empire in like, you know, the early 19th century, been trying to get these back. And so they've been basically, you know, sort of various campaigns. In the 1980s, I guess there were, um, you know, celebrities kind of got involved. Uh, uh, George Clooney's wife, Amal Clooney, uh, kind of got on, on this in, uh, in the 2000s to try to, to, try to get this, uh, you know, taken care of. And basically the, the uh, marbles repatriated back to, uh, back to Greece. So you fast forward to the current, you know, situation and the Greek prime minister basically wants to talk about this. And maybe negotiate something or have at least a, a discussion. And Rishi Sunak is like, no, like we don't, we don't want to have a discussion about this. We feel like these were le- these are legally ours, and so there's a dispute about you know the sort of legal status of this. But basically, didn't didn't want to talk about it. And so I got interested in this not not really because of this particular case, although I think it's interesting. And you're right, the king uh, did wear, I guess, a pin that sort of you know indicated support. You, okay, so I, I have the news here. So the king, the King Charles wore a tie that has what looks kind of like the Greek flag on the tie. Not really. It looks a little. You squint <laughs> you at it. You squint your it eyes. Looks like yeah. a Greek, like a Greek flag, and and it was interpreted as a, a, a message to the British Prime Minister to like soften his stance on returning the marbles, I guess, but. The king's office argues this was just a a coincidence, and he wore the same tie to meet with the South Koreans, and so you know it's just a tie he likes. So, <laughs> I don't know. Right. I mean, and, and so, the, the, but the bottom line here, it seems to me, is that you have this sort of dispute over these artifacts um, that were, they were. It seems to be clearly sort of taken as part of the colonization um, endeavor, right? Like it was, it was a long time ago when you know the 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 British Empire was able to essentially at will take whatever it wanted from its its colonies and there's there's if you've ever been to the british museum you know like there are you know there's hundreds and thousands of these of these artifacts taken from all of the different you know places africa in particular 
um, has had a lot of its arguably wealth extracted in these in these artifacts and brought back to the the British Museum. And there's a, there's a huge debate that has to do with um, you know sort of like the legal aspect of this and the culture aspect of this and like what's better for the artifacts themselves. Is it better to be in London or is it better to be in these places? I don't think there's much of a debate. Return the return the items to Greece. Well, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. But the people the people that sort of support the the idea that they should be in the British Museum say, oh, well, they should be in a a very like austere environment. It's you know people can care for them. We can get the pandas back to China. We can get the the Greek sculptures back to Greece. My sense is globally, I think there's a, a shift, and this is this is sort of like part of cultural diplomacy, right? So as as decolonization processes are taking place, particularly in Britain, and, and you know you have a lot of efforts to make sure that we're you know sort of decolonizing the the curriculum in schools and things like that. I think there has been in recent years, the last couple of decades, sort of a global shift in cultural diplomacy towards trying to sort of rectify these historical injustices and return artifacts back to the the sort of home environment where they where they came from. But what puzzles me is just so how slow and sort of tortured of a process this is. Because I look out in the world and I see sort of an I see a, a world that kind of agrees that these artifacts should be back in the countries from which they were taken, and yet. We have example after example of, in this case, you know, Britain basically or the UK government trying to hold on to these things and not even want to talk about it in a meeting. And so I, I can't actually explain that because I would imagine that if you did a poll of maybe I'm completely off on this, but I, I would think now I know you don't want to do referendums in the UK. Right. But if you did a, sort of a poll or a referendum in the UK and ask them. Do you think that these Elgin marbles should be in London and the British Museum or they should be back in Greece where they were taken? In the 19th century, I think most people would say you should send them back. And I think that has to that that goes for the the Benin uh, statues that goes for like all of these different artifacts that are like really important culturally, historically, you know, from a nationalist to the from the places that they were taken. I would think most people would be in favor of of giving these artifacts back, of, of sending them back. And you would be right. So real time fact check, Marcus, a YouGov poll carried out in January of this year found that 53% supported the return of the marbles to Greece with another 20% saying they had no strong opinion either way. Just 21% were opposed. Right. So here you have a situation where popular opinion, public opinion is is seemingly in one direction, and yet we're stuck in this moment of of not being able to get anything done. Which leads to the question of why. If you're if you're Rishi Sunak and you're looking at the the polling data, like what is the problem with giving Greece their Elgin marbles back? Like I, I just and I'm not I'm not trying to be flippant here and I'm not trying to, to, to start a fight. I just don't get it. I don't know why Rishi Sunak is, is so uh beholden to this idea that, that the UK must hold on to all of these things that were were taken through these colonization processes. I really don't understand. Just in the interest of completeness here, let me read a quote from the Department for Digital Cultural Media and Sport, which is a great that's a great agency and I hope people really enjoy working there. The quote is this is at the, in the UK. The Parthenon sculptures in the British Museum are legally owned by the trustees of the British Museum, which is operationally independent of government. Decisions relating to the care and management of its collections are a matter for the trustees. So this is a, you know, this is not a British government matter. Take it up with the British Museum, you know? I guess so. I mean, I, and I think this is the, always the argument, right? That there's like a legal framework um, that I get, evidently was established at some point, which gives, gives the British Museum, you know, sort of like legal cover for, for owning these things. 
it just seems to me that it, 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 maybe that's true. And maybe it's the case that, you know, quote unquote, legally, you know, these things were, were sort of um, uh, designated the, the possession of the British Museum. It just seems to me at this moment in time, make maybe some of these legal frameworks should be revisited or we need to figure out a way to diplomatically deal with this. Give the British Museum something in exchange for giving up the Elgin marbles and send the Elgin marbles back to Greece. That's what I'm saying. If you're Rishi Sunak, you're prime minister, you could figure out, I'm sure you can compensate the British Museum in some way. I'm sure they're going to be upset to, leave, to lose this uh, part of their, their display. But when, when the popular opinion is in one direction and it just strikes people as like the right thing to do, and the UK is engaged in this decolonization process uh, that you know supposedly matters is important to them, I, I would think it would be a good political move to figure out a way to negotiate, to help negotiate a return to these marbles and, and not certainly cancel the meeting where this is going to be discussed. It just, it just seems to me like a, a political, you know, missed opportunity, a faux pas. Uh, and, and frankly, it's the wrong thing to do. I, another real time fact check. The, apparently the department for digital culture, media, and sport was replaced by two departments, the department for science, innovation, and technology, and the department for culture, media, and sport, which I much prefer. I was thinking like, who are the people who work in digital and like, do you like meet in the cafeteria and you're like, where do you work? Oh, I work sport. What do you work? Digital, you know, but now these people are rightly in different agencies. So I just wanted to clarify that that must've been an old, an old quote from before the reorg. So just to, <laughs> just to make that clear to everyone. Um, but I'm with you, Marcus. I say, give the, give the sculptures back to, to Greece, figure it out. This is like the opposite of diplomacy. What do you call it when you just, you're just doing stuff to annoy other countries all the time? Is there a word for that? No, there's not. Although we should coin it. Yeah, that would actually be really. We should write that paper. Like anti anti diplomacy. Because yeah. I'm sure there's a I'm sure there's a you know a, a number of cases where this has happened. It's like oh, anti diplomacy. Yeah, diplomacy. yeah whole countries are trying this on a daily basis. And there is a tie-in. It seems to me like with the the you know what we're seeing. I think is a, in the moment is like this discussion about things being returned or things being taken. So it's like there's a, there's parallels of panda diplomacy because th that's a case where yeah. China is saying we're taking back the thing. And here, Greece wants to take back the thing as well, but it's not diplomacy. It's it's sort of like this, you know, longstanding historical uh, problem. But it just seems to me like we should we should err on the side of what makes people happy. And I think what would make people happy in this particular instance is sending the Elgin marbles back. And I think what would make people happy in the panda diplomacy is having pandas stay in Washington D.C. and in Australia and other places. I, I don't I don't care about what makes people happy, but. These are stolen things from another country, and they should be returned. I mean, this yeah. is there's a, like a, a moral, ethical argument here that is beyond public opinion. So, whether, whatever the public of the UK thinks, they should return these artifacts because they're not they're not British. They were stolen. Okay, here's an idea. Here's an idea, Jeff. So, the British Museum, as far as I understand their argument, is like there's a legal framework that when these things were made our, our possession, that made that we're the legal you know possessors of this. That, that that's fine. What if the international community came together and they said, okay, we are going to create an international institution. We're going to create an international uh, treaty that says any artifact that was taken by colonizers must be legally, by international law, repatriated. That would be bold. That would be a big, big deal. But it seems to me like the right thing to do, right? Like if you acquired something, even under the auspices of, of a legal framework that existed at the time, the Ottoman Empire said you could have it or whatever, then that's, that's fine. That was a different period of time, different sets of ideas, different sets of norms, different sets of laws and rules. It seems to me like we're at a period in our, in our culture where we can revisit that and just say as an international standard, 
if an artifact was acquired through the process of colonization, that if the country wants it back, maybe they maybe they don't want it back, but if they want it back and they make a claim on that, that from an international law perspective, you would then have to give that artifact back. I would be a supporter of such a treaty. I would support that treaty as well. Let's let's get something written up and circulated. Let's right. uh, take the next. Because I know step. you're a big of all people. You're a big proponent of international law. You I have international law. Uh, it it's definitely a, a thing. Definitely a thing. Definitely, it's not a misnomer. It's, no, it's a thing. That's a thing. Right. right, Marcus. Let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. And when you get uh, numbers on our sales, be sure to send me a, a quick email. Yeah, but thank you for the reminder. Everyone who's listening should go to cheaptalk.shop. Check out the various T-shirts, hoodies, AirPods cases, mugs, stickers that we all have available um, at cheaptalk.shop. And uh, you can get your holiday shopping done there. One stop, everything you need, it's, it's, it's there. And we uh, appreciate you checking that out and also appreciate your feedback. So thanks to those who've emailed um, to you. Uh, to, to tell us about the store or what they want to see in the store. That's all. And I will helpful. say, I mean, a, a, a T-shirt with my face on it makes a very nice uh, holiday gift. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And if you have a question for us, something you want us to talk about, something that Professor Holmes got wrong and you want to point out, then just email us at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or you can go to www.speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk to leave us a voicemail. Marcus, thanks again. Thanks, buddy. See you next week. I appreciate everyone who's taking the time to go on, go to the store, buy some T-shirts or stickers or the mug, which is apparently like everybody needs a mug, apparently. Check that out if you haven't yet. It's at cheaptalk.shop, and it's a good place to find holiday gifts for the IR enthusiast or someone who listens to the podcast or even yourself because you've been working hard. It's been a tough year for a lot of people and you deserve a cheap talk t-shirt to have for the holidays. So um, treat yourself. Well, just, just picture this also, Jeff. I mean, you're sitting around your, your tree or your, your lights or whatever it is that you happen to do. Maybe you don't do anything for the holiday season, but you're just taking a rest from, you know, your job or from uh, school or whatever. And you're, you're, you're sitting amongst friends and you're enjoying a meal or, or some beverages and you have a shirt that says countries are people. Just imagine sort of like the conversation that's going to be engendered by that by that wardrobe choice, you know, and then you can explain like, well, there's this long-standing debate in international relations theory. Are states people? If, if they're, they are, Is like, that really a debate? people? <laughs> well, we had, we had that debate. You and I had that debate. I mean, it's a debate I mean, between I think it was you settled. and me, but I, I think I'm on the side, on the majority side on this one. I think most people would, would agree that once they learn about the topic, that states indeed are people, as oh, we've good. discussed, okay. and they have emotions and they have boundaries. And, but anyway, so, so the point is, is that this would be like a conversation starter. You can get into, you know, this, this really kind of interesting discussion about whether states are people, countries are people, uh, and that will... Who knows where that will lead? And so I, I encourage everybody to think about that uh, this holiday season. Yeah. And I mean, that balloon corner hoodie is answering a lot of questions, you know? So if people have people want to come up to you and ask you about your, your sweatshirt, you know, that's, that's a good opener to talking about the podcast, China, what is the role of uh, satellite technology and surveillance technology in yep. the modern international security environment? That's one good opening for, for having Precisely. that conversation with your friends and family.